Hello. You are listening to My Room Best and Present Podcast. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought Series and was recorded on the 5th of October 2017 at the Centre d'études Maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT. In this podcast, Dr. Miriam Getat, CEMAT Assistant Director, interviews Dr. Lawrence Michalak, a cultural anthropologist and former CEMAT Director, on the five decades research spent in Tunisia devoted to weekly markets and informal economic networks. Larry, you first started conducting your ethnographic research with the study of weekly markets in the 1970s for your doctorate. Is that right? Yes and no. I did study weekly markets. However, I think my experience in Tunisia began much earlier. I came here in 1964 when I was 21 years old. I was an English teacher in the Peace Corps, and um, I didn't know where Tunisia was when they invited me. I got an invitation to go to Tunisia, and I had studied a lot of Spanish, and I thought for sure they were going to invite me to Latin America. So I thought, Tunisia, it ends in IA, so it must be near Colombia and Bolivia, because they end in IA too. And I took a map, and I looked for Tunisia in South America, and it wasn't there. So I... um looked in the encyclopedia and it said it was in North Africa and they were Arabs. And I thought, why are they inviting me there? And I read some more and it said they speak French as well as Arabic. And I had studied French, although less than Spanish, so that's why they were inviting me. So I said, well, I don't know anything about this place, so it'll be a new experience. So I came to Tunisia and I just really liked it. You can tell because I keep coming back, you can't get rid of me. Um, I was an English teacher first in Amsekin, and Amsekin in 1964 was a very, very traditional place. There were almost no lights on the streets. There were only two buildings that was more than one floor. The people were very traditional. I lived in the internat of the school uh, in a room with broken windows, and I ate in the internat. And uh, I taught in Amsekin for about two or three months. And the teaching inspector came, and he liked my class. There were 35 of us, and he thought I was the best English teacher because I was imitating him, (laughs) but he didn't realize it. And so he thought this was wonderful. So he transferred me to Tunis, and in Tunis I went to Kore Sadiki. I taught at Kore Sadiki, which, of course, is the most prestigious secondary school in Tunisia. Habib Urgiba went there. All of his ministers went there. And it was founded uh, before the protectorate as part of the Tanzimat movement uh, for reform under the Ottomans. It was the first modern school in Tunisia integrating a mosque into the school. So it was a great honor to teach there. And right next to there was, and still is, the University of Nefavril, where I went to go to sociology classes just for fun. And so that was the beginning of my scholarly interest in Tunisia. I should also add that uh, Tunisia really saved my life. In 1966, when I finished in Tunisia, I was uh, 23 years old. 
and it was the Vietnam War, and they were going to send me to be a soldier in the Vietnam War. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to leave the country, so I guess I'll have to do that. But the Peace Corps invited me to come back and be the associate director of the Peace Corps from 1967 to 1969 for two and a half years. And so I said, great. And the Peace Corps wrote a letter to my local draft board and said it's in the national interest for him to come back because he lived with a Tunisian family with 10 children. He learned to speak Tunisian Arabic dialect. He was the best teacher of English in the group, and he's going to be responsible for the English teachers. So I came back, but I had friends who were killed in Vietnam from Tunisia. So Tunisia saved my life. Thank you, Larry, for such an emotional testimony. Our next question, what was Tunisia like during that period? Oh, Tunisia in the 1960s. Well, it was very different from now. The population of Tunisia was only a bit more than 3 million people. Now it's more than 10 million people, maybe even more than 11 million people. So it was a much smaller country in population. Also, it was a very underdeveloped country. The roads were not that developed. Everyone thinks the French did so many things for Tunisia, and they did some things, but there weren't very many schools. In the entire northwest of Tunisia, there was no secondary school. People who wanted to go to secondary school had to go live in the Antonin, in Sousse, or Tunis. Uh, Tunisia was, uh, a lot of people lived in in uh, gurbis. They lived in houses that were made out of mud and straw, and not many people had gone to school. Tunisia, in those years, spent almost a third of the national budget for schools, for building schools, for paying primary school teachers, for paying secondary school teachers. And in those years, many of the teachers were foreigners because Tunisia didn't have enough teachers of their own. That's why they brought uh, our English teacher group, because the French withdrew their English teachers. They only would send teachers who taught things that had to do with France. And it was in retaliation for Bourguiba nationalizing the lands of the French in 1964. Tunisia was uh, a very austere country. It was a socialist country in the 1960s because the main person who made the policies in Tunisia, uh, Bourguiba was, of course, the president, but the main policymaker was Ahmed bin Salah, who was the head of four different ministries, and uh, he was a socialist, and he wanted to make Tunisia into a socialist country. And he socialized the agriculture, he socialized the commerce, and uh, it didn't work very well. Uh, part of it was because the weather was bad. Part of it was that the cooperatives were not very well run. So in 1969, um, Ahmed bin Salah was removed from office after I had left and uh, eventually he fled the country, and he didn't come back until many years later. But Tunisia was a socialist country. Also then, when I first came, they didn't have television in Tunisia. There were a few rich people with televisions that could capture the emissions from Sicily. So while I was here, they manufactured very cheap television sets. The brand was called Captage, and there was only one kind. And in Halfawin, uh there was... There were all these cafes, and there still are, and the cafes were very animated. Everyone was playing uh, backgammon, they were playing checkers, they were playing chess, they were playing shkupa and slamming the cards, and so very noisy, animated. One night I came home, and uh, I walked through the Place Babshika, and everything was quiet, and I walked past a cafe, and there were maybe a 100 people in the cafe, and they were all staring at me, and I thought, 
why are they staring at me? And then I realized they weren't staring at me. It was because I was passing the doorway and the television set was over the door. And they were all captured by the television set. And the Tunisians are still captured by the television set. If you have dinner at somebody's house, they have the television set sitting at the table as if it were somebody that they had invited. And then when their television is not on, I don't know if they still do it, but they would put a little veil over the screen of the television set, you know, as if they were putting it to sleep or something like that. So Tunisia was a very simple socialist place back then. People didn't eat very well. A lot of people, even in the 1970s when I did my research about the weekly markets, a lot of people almost never ate meat. And people didn't have refrigerators, so there was nothing to keep meat fresh. So even those who ate meat, on market day they would buy meat and they would eat it the same day. Also, the last thing about Tunisia in those days was that um, Bourguiba was very healthy then. Later, his health wasn't very good, but he was on top of everything, and he was full of energy, and he was an amazing speaker. Uh, Bourguiba was on television all the time, and he gave these wonderful speeches, and he would he didn't use a text. He would just get up and talk. He was like uh, Martin Luther King. He would get up and... Uh, he would stop a lot and he would think, you know, and he would frown and he would look around and then he would think for a minute. And it was as if he was saying, I'm the president and you're not. So you're going to wait until I think about what I want to say. And then he would decide what he wanted to say and then he would start talking. And then he would end his speech. And it was like an Arabic song or a flamenco song where it gets more intense and then it ends. I met him once in 1967. I was invited to a reception at the palace in Carthage with a group of Americans. And he was such an amazing man. When you shook hands with him, you could feel the electricity. And he was very short. You don't know that when you see pictures, but he was extremely short. Uh, and he had these blue eyes that were very, very blue. And he was uh, very, very dynamic. Also in those days, you went to the movies a lot. And Bourguiba was always in the news. You would go to the movies and they would have the news at the movies. So that was what Tunisia was like in the 1960s and 70s. So, through your research, what did you find out uh, about the weekly markets? Ah, oh, yes, the weekly markets. Well, I chose that topic when I went to graduate school at Berkeley in the mid-1970s. And the reason I chose the weekly markets was that when I had been in Tunisia, I always loved the weekly markets because uh, every place you went, especially the villages, there was one day which was the market day. And on the market day, everything was happening, and it was very exciting. And the rest of the week, things were kind of quiet. In the market, you saw the material life of Tunisia, because almost everything of Tunisia in the material life is in the market. They sold uh, food, of course, fruits and vegetables. They sold meat. Usually there would be a slaughterhouse. They sold used clothing. They sold new clothing. They sold uh, grain. They sold um, chickpeas. They sold everything in the market. So you saw everything of Tunisian life in the market. And also Tunisian society was in the market because all these people, especially in the Northwest, who lived out in the countryside, isolated, on the market day, they would get up early, get on a donkey, come to the market with a sack of grain. And when they got to the market, they would sell the grain in the grain market, get a little bit of money, buy the things that they needed, some sugar and some coffee and some tea. 
and they would go to the cafe and see their friends. And they would um, talk to their friends and get news. Lots of um, marriages began in the markets because people, because the girls would all go to the market in groups, of course, and they would walk around and pretend that they didn't know that the boys were looking at them. And the boys would go to the market and they would stare at the girls. And sometimes they would meet. And I remember one time I met a man in Eindraham and I asked him, how did you meet your wife? He said, I met my wife in the weekly market of Eindraham. So the weekly market is a very important place for social things and political things as well as for um, economic things. Because in the weekly markets, that was where a lot of the resistance against the French was organized. If you read Tunisian history and if you see when there were riots against the French in places, you look what day it was and it's the market day. There was a riot against the French in Mugnin. It was on Wednesday because that's market day. Can't have a market, can't have a riot on another day because there's nobody there. And also, uh, it's where they had resistance against the Tunisian government. The anti-bread riots began in weekly markets. One last thing about the weekly markets is that I learned a lot about how to do research because there had been a man who came before me, an American, a sociologist. And he wanted to study weekly markets. I met him later, and he said, Larry, don't study weekly markets. Let me tell you what happened to me. I used to go to the weekly market, and I would walk around the market, and then I would go back to my car, and I would take notes. And they arrested me. The police arrested me, and they took me to the police station, and I had to show them my permit, and they called around. And by the time they would let me go, it would be the end of the market. So I had a lot of trouble. So I recommend you don't study the weekly markets. But I did. I studied the weekly markets, but in a different way. Uh, when I would go to the market, the first person I would look for was the policeman. And I would go to the policeman and I would say, Aslema, Shnowelik, and Amerikani, You have a wonderful souk here. This souk in Fernanda, the Sunday market, it's so big, it's so wonderful. And I would say, do you want to see my rochsa, my permit? Would you like to see my passport? And sometimes they did. They would want to see my rochsa. They would want to see my passport. They would say, how did you get here? Where is your car? They would go to my car. They would open the trunk to see what was in it. And sometimes people would crowd around and they would all listen to the policeman and listen to me because this is what happens at the market. Exciting things happen at the market. The market is the entertainment of the week. And I was part of the entertainment. So I learned how to do research to always be open. I always have with me a notebook. Here's my notebook. Every time I come to Tunisia, I buy a Tunisian notebook. And I take notes in my notebook. I put the date, and then I put an index in the notebook, and I write everything in the notebook. And when I was in the market and somebody said something interesting, I would take out my thing and I would write in the notebook. They would say, well, why are you studying this? Why is this interesting? And I would tell them that... I had to write a doctorate, and with the doctorate, I would be able to get a good job in the United States and get married and raise a family. And in fact, that's what I did. So I did things to demystify my research and to always be very open about whatever I did. And that's the way you do any research in Tunisia. Always get a roxa permit from Semat, which I didn't do this time. I probably should. And then when you talk to people and they want to say, do you have permission to do it? You give them a copy of your Ruxa. You never give them the original because they'll keep it and you won't have it anymore. But uh, always be open about your research. And uh, 
people will help you. Thank you. So now, could you elaborate on how has your thinking evolved from the weekly markets to the informal sector over the years? Well, I did my thesis about the weekly markets, and I defended my thesis in 1983. And at the time, no, 1982, actually. And at the time, I had already gotten a job with the University of California at Berkeley, which is where I was a graduate student. I got an administrative job. I was the vice chair of the Middle East Center there. You're the vice chair of Semat, and I was the vice chair of the Middle East Center. And I, I actually stopped writing my thesis for a while. And the department said, why don't you hurry up and finish your thesis? Because the university will punish us if we have lots of students who don't finish their theses quickly. So I finished my thesis. Then I stayed at the university for 23 years. And always in the back of my mind, there was the idea that I should take my thesis and make it into a book. Every graduate student dreams of taking their thesis and making it into a book. In fact, my thesis won an award from the MESA. Uh, it won the runner-up for the best thesis that year. Uh, the best thesis was Laila Abkuluit. She wrote a thesis that later became Veiled Sentiments. And how can you compete against that? But I was the runner-up. Uh, but I should have published it, and I really never did. When I came to Tunisia as the uh, associate director, I was busy with Semat. So I had intended to do more research about the weekly markets and do the book while I was the director of, of Semat, but I didn't do it. So after I was the director, after uh, 2009, I came back. And I was going to come back and do the research and write the book. Uh, but I came back, when I came back after 2009-2010, they had had the revolution. And suddenly I thought, you know, my topic is not that exciting anymore. Uh, really what's happening in Tunisia is the revolution. And we researchers, we should do something that's contemporary, something that's current, something that's exciting. And I thought, you know, the revolution in Tunisia, the spark of the revolution, was a vendor. It was a man who sold fruits and vegetables. In, it was Mohammed Bouazizi. He set himself on fire and killed himself. And that was what started the so-called Arab Spring. So, And I studied these people. I studied vendors. But then I thought, but you know, he wasn't a vendor. He was not a Tejamu uh, Tejaula. He wasn't a vendor in the weekly markets. He was a street vendor. He sold fruits and vegetables on the street in um, in um, Sidi Bouzid. I said, you know, every day for four years here at Semat, when I walk from my apartment in Montfleury to Semat on the Rue d'Espagne, the Empas Menabreya, I walk past all these street vendors because, as you know, this is the part of Tunis which is thickest with street vendors, the Nasaba. And they sell everything. It's, it was really interesting. And always on my way to work, I would stop and talk to them. There was a man, you can weigh yourself for a hundred millimes. So I would give him a hundred millimes and weigh myself. They were selling all kinds of interesting things. You could buy leg meat. You could buy palm, palm juice uh, on the street and they drink it from a little cup and then go on. They had, uh, they had very interesting things that they were selling here. They sold uh, products made out of esparto grass, which is very interesting if you study Tunisian history because esparto grass was a very important product which comes from the plains. Now they use it for making paper pulp. But in the old days, they used esparto grass to make these circular things like donuts that they used for pressing olive oil 
uh, out of the crushed olives. And uh, so this was interesting. I saw they were making new products out of esparto grass. So I thought, you know, I, I thought instead of studying the weekly markets, I will study informal commerce. Because another thing that I discovered was, especially after the revolution, many, many people were unemployed and they had to make a living somehow. So they would make little jobs for themselves, not only as street vendors, but doing other things. Uh, for example, smuggling gasoline from Algeria and selling it by the side of the road. Or else women who would fly to Istanbul and bring back suitcases full of clothing and then they would sell them in their house. Or else people who would sell uh, pine tar. Or people who would... There are all kinds of people in the informal sector. And each one of them had a different story. And they had very bad reputation. Because everybody says, oh, the informal sector, these people are terrorists. These people are thieves. These people are stealing from the government. These people aren't paying taxes. They do not have patent. They do not have business licenses. And uh, they sell smuggled things, and they're very bad. And so we must make them pay taxes and get patent. And um, some of this actually is true. But most of the people in the informal sector, they're poor people who don't have a job, and they do this so that they can feed their family and survive. So I decided that I would study the informal sector, and I would show the different aspects of it, and how it is true that there are smugglers, some of them, but that some of them actually help Tunisia. For example, smuggling gasoline from Algeria. I know a man who does this. He goes to Algeria in an old car with a big gas tank that's been made bigger, and he buys gas at a gas station in Algeria, and then he goes back across the border, and he sells the gasoline in 20-liter bidon jerry cans. And he helps Tunisia, really. Uh, why? Because this is gasoline that Tunisia doesn't have to import, so they don't have to pay a lot of money for it. This is gasoline that Tunisia doesn't have to subsidize, because Tunisia subsidizes the price of gasoline. Also, this is a man who has a job, thanks to smuggling. He's been able to get married and have children, thanks to smuggling. And uh, the people that buy his gasoline can buy gasoline more cheaply than regular Tunisian gasoline. So they have more money left over uh, to give better food to their families and things like that. Uh, mind you, most smugglers are, many smugglers are very bad for Tunisia. Smuggling arms is very, very bad. Smuggling drugs, very, very bad. Smuggling alcohol is bad. Smuggling cigarettes is bad. But uh, some of it is not as bad as other. There are lots of women who, they live in the Kabon. There's a thesis about this by Hamza Meddib. And they get together, they rent, a, they rent a big truck with a driver, and they go to the Libyan border. They buy Chinese goods, clothing and stuff that's come across the border. They bring it back to the Kabon and they sell it on the Kabon. And um, this is not such a terrible thing, you know. They should probably have duty-free markets or something so that people could do this. It's a very interesting topic. And also, I like the fact that each one of these people has a story. And each one of them has a different story. And they have a different product. And sometimes their products are very interesting products. So if you study them and their products, you learn everything there is to know about Tunisia, like in the weekly market where you see the material culture of Tunisia. Now, of course, if you're a political scientist or if you're a sociologist, you will say, oh, these anthropologists, they're always doing stuff like that. They're studying, they're telling their little stories and their anecdotes. 
We study the larger economy. Uh, we don't study micro sociology. We don't study micro economics. Uh, and uh, besides, you know, sampling. How do we know that his case studies are a stratified random sample that represents the informal structure, informal economy? Well, one of the things I do is that I have studied the things that the economists have written about the informal economy, and I integrate my work. There has been a lot of work done which is quantitative, and my work is qualitative. And I don't say the quantitative is bad, the way some of them say the qualitative is bad. No, I say that you need both. I say that if you want to study the informal market, you have to meet the people in the informal market. And if you've never met any of them, you don't know what you're talking about. There was a study where uh, they took the gross national product of Tunisia, they subtracted the formal gross national product to get an estimate of the informal product. They divided it by the estimated number of people in the informal sector, and they said, look, the average income of people in the informal sector is 19,000 dinars a year. Of course, this is absurd. Most of the people, two-thirds of the people, according to the study that I'm working with, two-thirds of them make less than 5,000 dinars a year. So they don't owe any taxes. They're not stealing from the government. They don't owe anything to the government. So uh, it's not true. It's true that there are some of them who make a lot of money. There are smugglers and stuff like that. But uh, that's 1% of them. 99% of them, or let's say two-thirds of them, are poor. And then there are some who make a little bit of a good living, but not really that much. And I suppose they could pay taxes, but you wouldn't get that much money from them. So uh, I hope that my book will be an interesting book, and it will have lots of stories, but they are not anecdotes. They're case studies. And I study how people live, how much money they make, and, um, you know, what their strategies are, where did they get their capital, uh, and things like this. So my study is putting together the qualitative, which I do, and the quantitative, which other people have done, in order to show the whole economy, in order to show the whole thing, and in order to be relevant to Tunisian national policy, because the Tunisians are thinking about what should they do about the informal sector. There's a lot of effort to formalize the informal, as Hernando de Soto, the South American economist, says. Does that work? Actually, it does work to a certain extent, and that's what my book is about. On this note, uh, could you tell us more about your current book project? Well, my book project about informal commerce, first of all, I'm not writing about the whole informal economy because it's too much for one person. The informal economy might account for maybe a third of the gross national product of Tunisia. And it accounts for more than a third of the workers in Tunisia because there are a lot of people in the informal economy, some say up to half. But in fact, there's a fallacy, the idea that you either are in the formal economy or you're in the informal economy because a lot of people are in both. For example, you take a teacher in secondary school teacher and uh, this person... Uh, works for the Ministry of Education, and they get a salary from the Ministry of Education, and they pay taxes. The taxes are taken out of their salary before they ever see the money. They also take money out for Social Security and health, and then there's a matching amount for that too. These teachers, some of them also make other money. 
because they give private lessons. Sometimes they make as much from the private lessons as they make from their regular salary, and they don't declare this income. I'm not saying that they that it's bad or good. I'm just saying that they don't declare this income and they don't pay taxes on it, although they do pay taxes on another part of their income. Here are people that are in both the formal economy and in the informal economy. So you can't divide the informal national product by the number of people in the informal economy because people are not in one or the other. A lot of people are, are in both. So my book is going to uh, address this and it's going to address policy. But I have a lot of really wonderful stories, uh, stories with morals. They're not anecdotes. They're not just amusing stories. They're stories which show things. They're stories which have a point. They're stories which teach about the economy. They're stories which teach about people's strategies for surviving and living. How do you live on 300 dinars a month in Tunisia? The people on the Royal Jazeera, the people on the Rue d'Espagne, how do they live on such little money? You know, it's interesting. And you talk to them and you ask them and you find out about it. Um, one more thing is that I got this idea partly because when I wrote my thesis about the weekly markets, uh, I had a friend who read the thesis and I said, how did you like it? What did you think of it? And she said, oh, it was very interesting. But you know, the part I liked the best was you had a chapter that was called 10 Vendors in which you talked about 10 vendors in the weekly market and what the product was they sold and how they got the product and where they got their capital and where they bought their truck and all that. And I really liked hearing about these people. And I thought, you know something that's true. That stuff is really interesting. And so my book about the informal commerce is going to be very heavily based on case studies. And it's going to integrate the case studies with the macroeconomy. So it's it's microeconomy and macroeconomy and microsociology and macrosociology and micropolitics and macropolitics integrated together because there is not only informal economy, but there's also informal politics. The revolution was informal politics. The revolution was taking the formal politics, the president, kicking him out of the country, taking the party which had run Tunisia ever since independence and smashing their building, destroying the party, making people leave the party. It was about people who went into the street, who demonstrated. It was informal politics and there was their relationship between informal commerce and informal politics because it was a struggle over the street. Who does the street belong to? Does the street belong to the police or does the street belong to the people? And uh, so this was uh, something which was apparent from the very beginning because Mohammed Bouazizi, you know, that was the start of the revolution and it was in the informal sector. The revolution began with the intersection between informal politics and informal economy. And uh, it's still the two are very closely related. Thank you, Larry, for this insightful talk and for giving us the opportunity to learn from your outstanding experience. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, click like on our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the CEMAT newsletter at cematmagreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. 
See you soon for new episode.